of the greatest benefits we enjoy on board the Datanauts Dreadnought-class battlecruiser is an entire ship that responds to anything we need, from rooms that track our desired temperature and lighting requirements to automatic shields that deploy when the whole breach is detected. I hope we don't have one of those on the show. Having a massively connected starship is awesome. But what about the Internet of Things, or IoT, work being done back on the planet Earth? Do you have to worry about rogue enemies attacking your food replicator or hydroponic growth chambers? Or should you just enjoy the delights of technology? Join us in this episode as we tackle the balance between usefulness and vulnerabilities. Howdy, I am Chris Wall. You can follow me at Chris Wall on the Twitters. And with me is my co-host, who is able to interconnect network switches with the power of his mind. That's Ethan Banks at EC Banks on the Twitters. And this is, of course, the Data Nuts podcast. You can find this and all of our shows on iTunes, in your favorite podcatcher, or at packetpushers.net. This is going to be a fun show. It's just Ethan and I. I. I don't know if I should say just Ethan and I. I think we're snazzy at a certain level. But we're going to be talking about the Internet of Things, although I first read it as IOT, because I'm obviously way less versed with this technology at a deeper level than you, Ethan. And that's actually a good way to introduce the episode, because you're writing a book as single tear rolls down my cheek. Because I know the pain of doing that. So <laughs> tell me about this book. What are you working on? It obviously it ties an Internet of Things somewhere. It would be more accurate to say that I'm contributing to a book as a co-author with Russ White. And the book we're working on is Computer Problems and Solutions. This book has got a whole series of chapters, something like 30 chapters covering common issues that you run into in networking. And then the solutions, the different ways you solve those problems. And we have a forward-thinking section at the end of the book covering new things, emerging trends, and one of those is IoT. And IoT is one of the chapters that I wrote, one of the few chapters that I wrote. Russ is a writing machine, and I'm <laughs> somewhat less of a machine. Anyway. My thought is only 30 chapters on troubleshooting network stuff. I felt like maybe you had to stop at some point, right? <laughs> like this book could be forever. Well, that's that's the joke, right? It's been what do you add and what do you leave out? So it's it's very difficult to cover everything. And it's meant to be a fundamentals book, not cover everything at a super deep level. And it is hard to choose what you cover and what you don't. Well, speaking of choosing, though, I guess two comments here and a question. What drove you to focus on the Internet of Things? I guess we'll just say IoT. Can I say IOT? Is that a thing? That's not a thing as far as I know. Oh. It's, I, it's either Internet of Things or IoT. Oh, because IOT sounds pretty cool. So anyways, what drove you around that? And the last kind of real dealing I had with Internet of Things at a more you know consumer level was the Google Glass. Maybe I'm dating myself. That was like 2012 or 11 or something. So what drove you to that? And what is Internet of Things these days? Internet of Things introduces challenges for networking professionals, especially for lots of people, but for networking professionals, especially one is in the area of connectivity, how you actually hook up all these different sensors and so on that make up the so-called Internet of Things. And then uh, security, security has become a real big issue in the Internet of Things. In other words, since this book is about problems and, uh, and solutions and IoT is sort of kind of introduced some new issues there, we felt it was appropriate to have a chapter in there. Plus, it's emerging anew and becoming more and more you know, serious of a marketing term. Beyond just being a marketing term, it's actually a, you know a product set that's uh, viable and uh, you know and meaningful. So, I mean, as far as you know, Google Glass, I mean, that's that's maybe one example of uh, of a thing. You know, a Google Glass camera and interface that can connect you in the weird way that Google Glass does with the rest of the world. But there's lots of things now that fall under that category. Okay, so let's take a step back. You know the hype cycle graph where it's like the, the magical unicorn upsweep? 
which, which I kind of made that up. Uh, but the, you know, the upsweep and like, oh, this is awesome. This is hype <laughs> through the trough of disillusionment, right. which I love. You know, yeah. wh- where are we at in that kind of graph? Uh, I would say that we're a little bit past the hype cycle. We're coming down the other side now. We haven't quite hit the trough of disillusionment or maybe we're getting pretty close to it because of all the security <laughs> issues. But we're at that point where people are buying things, people are deploying IoT networks, people are running into the problems of running IoT networks and trying to figure out just how to make them work. So we're past the, ooh, it's going to be a big thing, and into the, now let's deploy it and see what reality is part. So getting to that trough of disillusionment, I suppose. That's fair. And I think that's just part of the adventure. You know, as people start using this cool new thing, it's like, oh, yeah, we forgot about, you know, security and all these other pieces and parts when it was that fun startup-y, you know, open source thing. Now it's, okay, people are using it. And that tends to put a spotlight on all the bugs and the issues and both political and and whatnot. So let's talk about the Internet of Things market. You know, obviously, I I don't know very much about it. I'm, I'm still in the Google Glass era type thing. But I noticed that, you know, when we were talking earlier, you had kind of broken it down into three buckets, you know, the residential consumer, which I think is more where I'm familiar. Give us some of those markets and some examples as to what's going on in that space. Okay, we'll talk about the buckets in just a second. So just to get a sense of IoT and what exactly it is, it would be all of those sensors and things that do something for you, give you a bit of data about your environment. And that's a good background to then talk about the bucket. So you mentioned residential consumer, the IoT devices would be things like wearables, you know, your fancy watch that tracks your heart rate and uploads all that information to the cloud, home automation stuff. I have some Amazon Echo equipment now that would qualify as IoT and uh, you can, you know, smart thermostats and smart refrigerators and, and, and on, you know, smart lighting, all of those things that are connected to your network that didn't used to be that you can remotely control over the network somehow. That all fits into that category. Uh, There's a bunch of you know odds and ends of, of gadgets, I suppose, that could fit in there. Uh, cars maybe would fit in there into the residential bucket with uh, lots of data streaming off the cars, particularly cars like Tesla now. Uh, and that's going to be even more so with uh, when we move into self-driving. A lot of the cars will have pushing lots of data, pulling lots of data from the network as they drive themselves around. So that that's a bucket. Did you hear recently too? Maybe it's a little more current when Musk was uh, he was talking about automation and AI when it comes to cars, and he was he's kind of warning about the uprising of the machines taking over, you know, overthrowing humanity in some way. Yeah, there's lots of discussion <laughs> about that, and, and and he's a bit out there, you know, in that opinion. But that right, that that the idea is if you write enough artificial intelligence code. It will eventually become self-aware and begin to modify its own code to the point that you have the so-called singularity event where the machines begin to take over and do things of their own will without it being programmed into them. But uh, he's, I think, in a minority as far as those opinions anyway. I, for one, am looking forward to the uprising of my computer masters because it seems like I have to work less. I I don't think they're going to have me, you know, like chiseling rock or something because they'll be able to fix that problem. Right. That tends to be the area that I'm more familiar with. What about the other two? So industrial is is a big one because that's where a lot of money is. Um, In industrial IoT, you've got verticals like energy, so uh, wind energy, oil and gas, oil platforms out in the ocean, uh, and so on. You've got things like smart cities where they're doing parking rather than being individual parking meters. They're all networked somehow or another. You know, smart lighting, conserving energy and lighting appropriately uh, at appropriate times and intensities. Locomotives, where there's an, an interesting industrial 
IoT application where a locomotive is trying to conserve fuel and based on interacting with GPS so that it knows the landscape ahead of it, it can determine exactly how much energy to expend to maximize fuel economy, which is a really big deal. Locomotives burn a lot of fuel. Manufacturing would be another example. You know, you're in a factory, you're making a widget, and you need to know if there's anything going on weird in the factory production line that might affect the quality of your widget, and you use IoT sensors to help you with that. That's interesting, because I would think like locomotive, it's been around for so long that there's not a huge amount of innovation, but if there's a lot of data we can collect and potentially act upon, that makes sense. You nailed it right there. It's the data you can collect and what is actionable about that data. So if you can that, – that, and that maybe that's at the guts of what IoT is really all about. <laughs> if you collect interesting data and can transmit it somewhere for processing where you can do something useful with it, then that's valuable. And for businesses that can be enormously valuable, there's a real ROI that you get out of this kind of stuff. So, And, and, and that's true for the enterprise too. So you look at the you – know, if we move over to the enterprise bucket – Smart buildings, that would be one of the places that IoT plays. So environmental controls and lighting controls within a building. If you can optimize those things and automate those things using IoT sensors, you can save a bunch of money on heating and cooling in that building, you know, burning lights in that building and so on. You know, healthcare is another one. All kinds of specialized healthcare data and special machines inside of a hospital that measure all sorts of things, dealing with people that are ill and being diagnosed and, and so on. So uh, healthcare is another big IoT market for the enterprise. So it, it, I think you get the sense of it. Again, you nailed it with the idea of it's all about that data and being able to do something useful with that data that has a bearing on a business outcome for industrial enterprise particularly. And then for residential, it's a different sort of thing. It's like we like stuff in our house because we like stuff or we like wearables because we like them. We like the information that we get because we're nerdy kind of people. And uh, yes, that's we be are. becoming more and more prevalent across. It's not just nerds like, you know, you and I that love electronics. It's becoming everybody that's out there really getting into their gadgets. Uh, yeah, speaking of smart buildings, when are we going to finally have an office building where everyone's comfortable with the temperature? Because that's that's always the fight in the open seating style offices. You know, the the, ther <laughs> the thermostat has like a giant grid over it and it's locked. I, and I only one person has the code because everybody wants it a different temp. Like when you can solve that, then IoT is going to be sexy. there. Each week, we put together a show focused on the amazing world of enterprise data centers and their constant challenges to tens of thousands of snazzy listeners. But hey, we're just scratching the surface. So vendors, send an email to sponsors at packetpushers.net for information on how you can build a quality, informative, and fun sponsored show with us, the Datadots Podcast Crew. We will create impactful content that doesn't suck. Woo! Again, that's sponsors at packetpushers.net. So we know that it's not pronounced IOT, sad panda there. It's IOT or Internet of Things. It's a real thing. It applies pretty much everywhere. Let's dive a little bit deeper into the new technologies spawned by the Internet of Things. Where I wanted to start the conversation was around when I hear IOT, people say that the S stands for security which is like a really sour way to say that there is no security because there's obviously no S in IoT. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, why is everyone whining about it? Or, you know, why is this such a big thing? It feels like it, it's so prevalent. The security of these systems is such an afterthought. And yet it, there's so much snark about it at the same time. 
So a little bit of background here. There's a couple of interesting tech stories that came out near the end of 2016. One was the website Krebs on Security. Brian Krebs, he's a security former professional who still has a lot of contacts in the security industry, and he writes a lot about internet uh, security. His site was hacked via a distributed denial of service attack. And then somewhat later in the year, the Dyn, D-Y-N, who are responsible for many of the domain name servers that host domain names for a lot of big and notable businesses on the internet, their DNS infrastructure was also gone after with a DDoS attack that affected not just Dyn, but then Dyn's customers since people were not able to resolve host names if uh, they were trying to resolve that host name against a Dyn DNS server that was being DDoSed. So what that's all about, as the research was done on what caused these DDoS attacks, they were of unprecedented scale. It was found that many of the devices that were used in the DDoS attack were IoT devices. They were part of a, the Mirai botnet. And the reason that they were so many of these IoT devices that were pulled into the Mirai botnet was that they're just easily hackable. These IoT devices are getting shipped from manufacturers with the minimum viable product. What can I do to shove this product out the door and get someone to buy this thing? And so security is like last on the list. And so you've got things with default and easily guessable usernames and passwords or known vulnerabilities because there's old code running on these things or backdoors that are there inadvertently because they're running daemons that they don't really need because they're just using some kind of default Linux distro, et cetera. And so they're, be, they're very easily hackable because they're not shipped securely from the vendor because it's about their function, not about their security. And so they get owned, made part of a botnet. Got it, got it. So it sounds like you say it's last on the list. It doesn't even sound like it's on the list. And, and just to kind of level set my brain here, traditionally these botnets were formed by like phishing and, and doing things to get into like your grandma's computer and you have a lot of desktops just roaming around the world that have been infected. It sounds like the the water wants to go to the lowest and easiest level, maybe that the IoT devices have enough horsepower and have enough internet connectivity that if you just get a bajillion of those, it's much easier, quicker, and, and potentially it sounds like it'd be even more effective than trying to get, you know, grandma's computer. Yeah, exactly, because uh, you can get tens or hundreds of thousands of them, which is what they were seeing during these DDoS attacks, that that many devices had been hacked and were joined to the botnet to launch these attacks. So, right, easy target, low-hanging fruit, owned part of my botnet, make it huge, launch unprecedented size attacks. Yeah, so that, that's why <laughs> IoT is – it's not that IoT itself was bad. It's just that the market opportunity has made vendors be really lax about security is really the issue. Yeah, and it's an exponential amount of devices. I'm just thinking at my own home, I probably have 20 connected devices of which – you know, three or four are endpoints that are desktops, tablets, et cetera. So there's just more of them. So now I'm thinking, all right, my tinfoil hat is, is creeping closer to my head. What can we do about this security problems? Because I'm thinking I don't want my I don't want someone hacking into my fridge and like turning off the refrigerator and spoiling my food or telling my sprinklers to kill my lawn and charge a huge water bill. <laughs> So there's a couple of different perspectives here. One, we're talking about home networks. So let's just briefly address that one. You know, one strategy that I think we can use is uh, if you've got enough uh, home networking gear that, that's got these capabilities, not everything does and not everybody's going to have the know-how, but build an SSID for your IoT devices, throw all those uh, IoT devices into that specialized SSID and then throw that SSID into like a DMZ or a guest network. So it doesn't have free reign on the rest of your uh, a network. At least you can isolate those IoT devices from the rest of your home network, your workstations and things that you consider more valuable. That can help. 
And then just do the common sense things like you do on any system. Change the default using a password for crying out loud and all that stuff if you have that ability. That feels like it's the easiest fix, right? Because if 90% of the world is admin admin or something and you're not, then you're not even worth the energy to hack. In a lot of cases, that's that's exactly it. You know, Just making it a little bit harder means that it's a target of opportunity that's too difficult to get at so we won't even bother. There's other things we could do in the home network, but I think I, I think it's more interesting for us for this show to, to talk about the enterprise stuff. And there's really a couple of strategies that you can use. Well, there's several strategies you can use that can improve your IoT security posture. One is kind of like I was just talking about for the home network, only you do this in the enterprise context. You just put all the IoT devices on their own segment. They may need to contact one another. So these sensors, like they're all part of an environmental control system, and maybe they all need to can talk to one another depending on how they're built and what the, how the system works. Or maybe they need to talk to some central point of control, build out a virtual LAN, a VLAN just for them, and then put that VLAN on a firewall segment and then put a very rigid policy on the firewall segment so that those IoT devices can't talk back to anything they don't absolutely have to. Don't give them free reign to the internet. You know, lock them down tight with a firewall policy via an isolated segment. Now, you can take that philosophy one step further and go with what I would call endpoint isolation. So it's not just you've put all your devices on a segment and isolated that segment. Now you've got every IoT device as it's on its own segment, so to speak. And then you're running a filter that prevents that IoT device from talking to anything else. This would be more of a whitelist kind of a strategy. And if, if you're listening to this and you can kind of imagine building a policy in a firewall and you're wondering how you do it with an endpoint kind of solution. Yeah, uh, it does get a little bit more complicated there. And you want probably some kind of central management system to help you with this. But you're talking about a switch and then a switch port that you're running an access control list on. Or maybe you're talking about something like the Avaya. Avaya has a solution called Surge IoT, where you actually put a little device that they provide for you. You piggyback it off of the device you're trying to protect, and then you manage that little device, and it filters traffic going to and from the device. And they've got a policy manager that can do that for you. And you get the idea here. You just run really granular filtering on your IoT devices to make sure they can't talk to the bad guys if the bad guys reach out to them in some way. It's interesting hearing that because the VLAN strategy feels kind of like business as usual. We typically divide applications or tiers of the data center into VLANs anyways. I'm kind of wondering, though, typically you want like a slash 24 or something smaller. With IoT, because there's so many, do you typically carve up a much larger like layer three space for them? It's an it depends answer. You know, it's what you need. And you're right in the observation that VLANs don't feel like anything different and firewall security doesn't feel like anything different because it isn't. <laughs> I, that's the funny thing about IoT. They're just little computers that really are. And if you think of the, about them in that term, you know, in that context, then how to handle them. It's like we have security paradigms for this. We know how to do this, guys. Just because it's IoT doesn't make it a radically different thing. So, you know, one more point I'll throw out here is, you know how I was making the point earlier that vendors just have been shipping these things without a lot of – yeah. It sounds like bring your own security, basically. Like you buy this thing and then you buy another thing to secure. It's like, <laughs> really? Well, they could do better and build these things with the default security posture. One of the ways they could do that is something we've talked about on DataNuts before. Unikernels. IoT are like the perfect use case for a unikernel. What's an IoT device need to do? One thing. One thing. It's a sensor sharing data with something somewhere. 
It doesn't need full-blown Linux with all these nope, services running. Exactly. Yeah. So you strip it down to just the bare bones what it needs so that it's got the best and most robust security posture you can imagine with the least amount of attack surface, and then you ship it. Not only will it uh, be more secure, it'll, it should run faster too in theory, right? So, But that sounds hard. That sounds uh, like work. It, it, it wouldn't be hard if once you get over that initial hump. I think it's like <laughs> anything else. Is it as easy as cranking them out? No, but... Yeah, I just want to download the Ubuntu LTS and go. I don't want to, I don't want to have to put thought into this. Exactly. Obviously, sarcasm audience. So I think that describes the landscape within the data center quite well. What about outside the data center? Because I think a lot of the use cases you provide, obviously outside of the enterprise, but I think even within the enterprise, is more around gathering data in places where it's traditionally a little more difficult to do so. Yeah, so right. A lot of the context we've talked about so far has been... Connectivity in familiar ways, a Wi-Fi network plugged into a physical Ethernet, you know, a LAN scenario. But right, what about those devices that are out in the field, you know, the, out on a factory floor that maybe doesn't have wiring or, or Wi-Fi coverage or is so far away from home base that you've got to use some kind of long-distance communication? Uh, and, and right, so when you get into IoT and you start digging through the connectivity options – you see wireless and, and Ethernet, of course, but then you run into some low-power, long-distance kind of yeah. radio communications combos so that you can connect your IoT device wherever it is without having to have wires or Wi-Fi. That's what I was thinking because, you know, trying to get PoE switches into the field or inject power into Ethernet or, you know, in this case, you're talking wireless connection and therefore, like, what the heck do I do? You know, batteries, there's a lot of concerns. Like, what are the challenges there and how do you solve them? Yeah, the power grid is even a challenge for some of these things. You've got sensors out in the field, you know, way far away from anything. They're battery powered. And so you've got this problem where you've got a long distance you need to communicate with. You've got a power requirement that means this IoT sensor needs to run off of a battery. So how do you deal with that? I mean, if you look at traditional Ethernet and and wireless, they are always on kind of systems and this by default. That's not battery friendly. So you need something that's got what I would describe as a, a low-duty cycle device, something that can power on, send data, power back off again, and do it as quickly as possible. So that's one important aspect of a, of a low-power WAN. So essentially, the device is intelligent enough to sip its own power. Yeah, exactly. Because it doesn't need to be on 24-7. It's just squirting data every so often. Right. The protocol that it's using to communicate allows it to be very conservative. So, I mean, this wouldn't work for every application. But for applications where, say you've got a device that is for a vending machine, you know, and that vending machine only needs to send a little bit of data, you know, once a day or twice a day to kind of check in with home base with its inventory. Okay, it's not on a network. It's not – well, that might be powered, I guess, if, it, if it's a vending machine. But just go with me here. Yeah. It, uh, it's going to send a, a small burst of data once a day, cycle up the radio, send its little bit of data that tells inventory, cycle back down, and it can stay off again. So that could go for a very long time. And then it doesn't need to send a lot of data either. It's probably – it's not like it's like massive web pages with megabytes of graphics and all this crap that gets loaded in. It's like – a few K, you know, just a very yeah, here's small 3K amount of data. data. Yeah. It's all crunched together. It's all you need done. There's, there's no user experience because there's no user. That means you don't have to have a super high bandwidth network either. So you can go for a long distance because when you get into distance requirements, you need a lower, lower frequency radio spectrum to work with. So you get that distance. The higher you go up in the radio spectrum, the lower the distance is. So like 2.4 gigahertz wireless, 5 gigahertz wireless. Those don't go very far. We're measuring those in, you know, feet or maybe meters. 
but that's not far enough for you know this application. <laughs> so you need to be able to go miles, tens of miles possibly for something like this. So you end up in much a much lower band. Wasn't that what we have Pringles cans for? I thought that That's was right. the point. I mean, other than those weird <laughs> chips that are inside. I mean, but no, actually, you did. You taught me some. So early before we started recording, you, you sent me over some new terms to learn. I feel like I was going to the the class of Ethan Banks, uh, Lora WAN and LP WAN, and I was like, hey, what does this mean? Long range radio wide area network and low power WAN. And I really wanted you to dive into this deep because I was really nerding out when you were explaining what they are, what spectrum they run through, how, I mean, just go into that. How does it work and why is it super sexy for IOT? Sure. So low power WAN would be like a broad classification of a bunch of different protocols. Uh, one example of which is LoRaWAN, low, uh, long range radio wide area network. So LoRaWAN is interesting because it's unlicensed spectrum. It runs below one gigahertz. So as we were talking about regular Wi-Fi is like 2.4, five gigahertz. This runs below one gigahertz. Uh, it doesn't go very fast. It actually runs super low speed, like 0.3K to about 50K. And the distances is over a range of about 2 kilometers to about 15 kilometers. So, and again, it's not that it's like 0.3K <laughs> to 50K. That's like... It's like a long-range dial-up modem. Oh, my word. It's like, it's it's exactly. It's super slow. It goes back to the dial-up modem. And you're going, that is not you know, a lot of bandwidth. That's bad. Hey, we survived on that forever. So, you know, well, yeah. And then going back to our discussion here, I mean, for sensors with a small amount of data, that's fine. It's enough. It gets done what it needs to do. True. Even if you're transmitting like three or four K, we're talking eight seconds at the lowest speed to get the data out. That's plenty. In LoRaWAN, you know, the idea here is that you're talking from these IoT sensors as that are acting as LoRaWAN radio nodes to some kind of a LoRaWAN gateway that will connect to the traditional IP network. So you go LoRaWAN node, they talk to the gateway, drop off their data, the gateway repackages that data and then forwards it on to the traditional IP network, kind of like a bridge. And, and then again, it's all about that duty cycle. So LoRaWAN actually specifies different classes of devices that will use it. So you got class A, class B, and class C devices. And class A are what we were talking about earlier. They're super power efficient. They only wake up the radio when they have data to send. And once the data has been sent, they're awake for two receive windows during which they can receive data back from the gateway. And if they need to send more data, then can be delivered, or if they need to receive more data, then can be delivered during the two receive windows. Yeah, you got to wait. The data's got to be queued until the next receive window opens. And so super diligent about power conservation, meaning a battery-operated device could last months or even years you know, out there in the field. Kind of reminds me of like uh, terrestrial interstellar communications, you know, like this is when you can talk to me. Otherwise, don't assume I'm dead. I'm just not reachable for a moment of time. Exactly right. Almost like the latency of going across time. But in this case, we're just the latency of going across the power cycles. And if you don't need to talk to that sensor very often, that works fine. If you only care uh, about that sensor when it's got something to say to you, then that works out. If you don't have anything to say to it because all you're, you're just basically receiving the data it's sending, then a Class A device works. And that's the most typical kind of device you find on a LoRaWAN, uh, as a LoRaWAN device. You know, these Class B devices, they're pretty much like Class A, but they have a few more receive windows scheduled. So a Class B device, rather than just giving you a receive window when it's got something to say – it will also schedule some receive windows so you can talk to it more often. Oh, I don't have anything to say, but I'm going to open up a receive window anyway. So you burn more power that way, but it gives you the opportunity to send data to that device a little more often, that Class B device. And Class C is more like 
what we're used to, where it's more or less on all the time. And so if you actually read through LoRaWAN specs, they're like, yeah, this is a Class C device. You're not going to run this on a battery. It's just no way. You're going to drain it too fast because the radio is effectively on constantly. It's a node that you can talk to out there in the field at any time because the radio is always listening. So it's really expected that you're on the grid with that device talking to it. Would that be for something that needs to potentially respond to an input dynamically, like it's real-time listening because – I'm trying to think of the use case for this. Because you're programming that sensor with some kind of data. You're giving it some kind of input. It's a two-way communication. It's not just sending data. It's got to accept data, too, for whatever the reason might be. And you actually don't see too many of those either in this use case. But the spec exists. Gotcha. So commonly the A and the B, because they can run on battery power in those kind of weird spots. Most commonly the A, most typically. Um, B is spec I. Of the reading I did, I'm not aware of any vendors that have actually picked up on the Class B spec and made a device. You know, maybe there's something <laughs> out there now. But it was interesting. It's like, you can do this, but I don't know of anyone that was actually doing it. It actually seemed to be split between Class A and almost all of them being Class A and then Class C you know, as the other end of the spectrum. And LoRaWAN's been picked up by vendors, too. You know, Cisco's using it now. There's a, there's the Laura Alliance, L-O-R-A Alliance, that's that you can join and manufacture equipment and so on. So it's it's not the only protocol out there in this space, but it's just a great example of dealing with IoT out in the field that uh, that caught my attention. Well, what else is out there? It sounds like this isn't the only game in town. I'm assuming there's something else going on or other things going on. Well, sure. So another one that you know, if we step back from the IoT devices out in the field and think again to stuff that's local to us, like in our houses, you might run into Bluetooth low energy, short distance, low power, Low power usage is what I mean. So batteries can last a long time. So this could be something like a door sensor that needs to be operated by a a coin-operated battery. You know, that door sensor only ever sends data once in a while when a door opens or a door shuts. And that's really all it does. And you just want it to sit there and be powered and send that data. And it's in your house or it's in a enterprise facility. So... Bluetooth will function as a communications protocol, but it's the Bluetooth low energy spec that gets that done for you. Now, it would be nice if you could use this for audio because it's like, oh, my Bluetooth headphones could last forever. Only it's that duty cycle thing again. If you think about streaming audio, the radio is on pretty much all the time because it's got to be receiving audio as it's coming in, right? So that doesn't really work for Bluetooth low energy, although there are people talking about you know an application for that maybe. Uh, Zigbee is another one that people have uh, maybe heard of. It's kind of popular out there. Zigbee, uh, Z-Wave you know, is out there as well. And, and a lot of those have bridges where that will connect you from your IP or your wireless network to whatever this other flavor is like Zigbee and so on. So it's one of those things when you get into home automation, you start to see these terms pop up. And it's all about how that IoT device is communicating to the rest of your network. Oh, yeah. That's like a drug. I got to say the home automation space is a gateway drug into – that world because i started with the nest forever ago and then i picked up the uh samsung smart things and now the philips hue lights it's like i have a stack of hubs now attached into the center of the house that are all feeding into these devices and 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 you're right i am a little worried about power consumption obviously where can i plug things in and it's it's a huge gateway drug I, i just can't stop buying those things yeah amazon echo has prompted me to already buy a harmony hub that will allow me to do things like ask the Echo to turn on my TV and so on. So it is a drug, definitely. So now that we're all a little more up to speed on IoT, 
and we're all admitting like we're we're all like self drug addicts on the the IoT world with home automation enterprise stuff. You know, we're all adopting these devices. However, we've spent quite a bit of time talking about security. So it sounds like you don't really have a choice. You're going to either consume these directly by putting them into your enterprise or or your home or indirectly because someone else is putting them in there and you're just you're part of the data consumption. So, so is it really just all about security then? Is that the focus for IoT at this point? There's a few things here. So, I mean, if you're an infrastructure person wondering why you care about IoT, I mean, yeah, security matters. We talked a lot about it. We don't have to, I don't want to, you know, reiterate all of that stuff other than just, just reminding everybody that segmenting your network really matters. You know, big flat networks for all the convenience of design that they introduce are also a bit problematic. And so whether you're segmenting at layer three, you know, with route routing between VLANs forcing traffic through a filter or you're segmenting at maybe layer two, like with micro-segmentation techniques like VMware NSX and a, a whole host of other tools can give you, that segmentation, keeping endpoints from talking to things they ought not talk to, whatever your means is, is kind of a big deal. And IoT just makes it even more of a big deal since they suck right now. That attack service is a real pain in the butt and something to be aware of. That's what I was thinking of. There's just there's so many of them because there has to be, you know, especially as, as you were talking through the, our previous conversation about uh, deploying these class A devices. It seems like the easiest way to add redundancy is just to deploy two of them because I, I feel like the cost wouldn't be all that great in that way. If one dies and you have to replace it, you got a second one you can talk to. So then maybe there's even more. Uh, and as you deploy in the enterprise, redundancy tends to be something we focus on. So that attack service gets even larger. So that just feels like part of the systemic problem is that there's just more of them. And then you add – if you add lack security with an exponential growth to targets, you get a, you get that huge tax service that becomes very lucrative for folks that are looking to do harm. Yeah, potentially. So, uh, yeah, I mean, again, segmentation is uh, is where it's at, I think, for IoT. And, you know, but, but hopefully there's also going to be a call from customers and consumers to, hey, guys, quit screwing up here and make these things more secure. We'll see how that goes. Maybe you mentioned, Chris – just the sheer volume of these devices, which makes addressing them an interesting question. So, and, and some people have made the case that um, because there's so many more devices on your network now, possibly thousands or in, in, in radical cases for very large organizations, millions more devices on your network in the form of IoT sensors. How do you deal with addressing all of these devices? Immediately, you know where my mind went, right? Earlier shows we had on IPv6, yeah, because <laughs> then you get like quadrillions of addresses or whatnot. Well, and, and that is one answer. So IPv6 advocates will use and and fairly so will use IoT as one of their points. Look, guys, you're going to have all these more devices. You really need to move to IPv6 because then your addressing problem goes away. Yay! Uh, and that is good for that. IoT IPv6 is a good match for um for IoT device uh, explosion, if you will. I don't mean like it would physically explode. That'd be sad. But uh, you know, just the sheer number of them out there. <laughs> but wait, there's a but though. I mean, because I, I know Ed Horley is going to be, you know, kind of rolling around on the carpet that there's a but <laughs> against IPv6. But he, he, so like, explain it. <laughs> so we were talking about LoRaWAN, Chris, the, you know, and how slow it was, you know, like 0.3K to 50 kilobits per second. All right. And, you know, and you've got a very low uh, duty cycle. If you actually start digging into the LoRaWAN packet formats, they are very, have very small headers. They, they put very little around the payload because you've got a very small amount of bandwidth that you're working with to push that data. 
you don't want to have like lots and lots of addressing headers you know, around that payload. You want us to do as little header addressing as possible to get that payload to the LoRaWAN gateway. Oh, let's say I want to add IPv6 to that. Well, like you've just quadrupled or more your header size and put a very large header, meaning you're on the air with the radio talking for quite a while just to get your IPv6 headers out the door. The point being, IPv6 doesn't work everywhere necessarily. It really depends on the scenario on the protocol that you're using. If it's in the house, if it's in your enterprise and everybody's on Wi-Fi and everybody's are cabled up with Ethernet, yeah, fine, whatever. Use IPv6. And the IETF, Internet Engineering Task Force, even has reference models and flavors of IPv6 stacks that can be used as small and resource-efficient IPv6 stacks that you can use in these devices. But then the communications problem, how long do you have to be on the air just to get your IPv6 header addressing stuff done? Okay, now I got that to the payload finally. And so, it, it, again, point being, it doesn't really fit everywhere. They're kind of a weird match. The snarky part of me just was mentally thinking, we'll just put the double colon to replace all the zeros, and now that's the packet right. header is smaller. That's right. <laughs> oh, if only. If only it worked yeah, that Obviously, way. that's for that's for human eyeballs, not, not right. mechanical eyeballs. Um, and that's it, it's actually interesting because it's not something I would immediately think about. The size of a header of a packet is so deep within the like the nerd knobs of transmitting data and such a thing that we take for granted nowadays because we have so much bandwidth available that when we all of a sudden turn the nerd knob on bandwidth and constraints around throughput now the header actually is part of the equation it's actually a potential constraint so i just think that's interesting that it's something you have to consider now what about you were talking about using sensor data in real time how, how does that kind of factor in the equation yeah, so this is another one of the, the use cases for IoT is to take the data from the IoT sensors and do something with it. All right, so near the top of the show, we talked about like industrial use cases, factories and locomotives trying to do computations on fuel efficiency and so on. You need that data. You need that data now. You need the data munged and processed now and then software to interpret the data so you can do something with it now. It's all got to happen in real time. So... Okay, the problem is how do I get data from my IoT sensor to somewhere that it can be processed and reacted to in real time, you know, immediately? And if you're trying to pump it up into the public cloud for processing, that's probably not real time. Like we, we've had discussions on the show about moving data from your data center up into the public cloud. And depending on your application architecture, how slow that can make things because of network latency. So you got to, in other words, you got to do your application architecture and construct it very well. IoT is kind of an example of this problem. And so the, the industry solution for this becomes – well, have you heard the term fog computing? Oh, gosh, have I? And, and also, <laughs> I want to give you plus 15 cool points for the use of munged in a sentence. There you go. It really took me back. But yes, fog computing and – I mean, I, I'm mentally vomiting now. But please, right. please go That's on. Right. Tell right. me more about the fog. Okay. So, so the idea behind the term fog computing, which I think is starting to die the, the death it deserves finally, the, the idea behind fog computing is I need to get my data processed now. I don't have time, therefore, to pump it up to public cloud for processing. So I'm going to build some kind of computing architecture that is very close or reasonably close by my IoT sensors so I can pump the sensor data into this local processing cluster munge that data and then get a result back so I can react to it right now. Okay. So that's the fog. It's the cloud that's close to you. The fog. That's where that idea came from. I mean, visibly, that is kind of what it looks like as you get inside of it. You can never actually get in the cloud. It always appears to be away from you and foggy. But come on. 
Come on, marketeers. You can do well, I better. Think, again, I think it's starting to die, even though there's still a fog computing consortium and so on. I think the term is it really hasn't oh, caught I didn't on. Know that. Oh uh, yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. It's 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 not very active, but it's still out there. I really think the term that's taking over is now edge computing, and that term makes me barf a little bit less than fog computing. Edge computing makes okay, it's on the edge of my network. I get it. It's not up in the cloud, it's at the edge of me, and uh, IoT sensors pump data into the network edge. You know, there we go gets the processing done on it, a result set comes back, and now I can react to that data in whatever way I need to. Again, the use cases being like, uh, you know, that factory that's got a manufacturing uh, line, and there's something going on weird in the middle of the line that could affect quality for the end product. Ooh, we better figure out exactly what's going on. Fix it now, or we're going to have a quality control problem. Things you just, you can't wait for. But either way, the, the sensors are sending the data somewhere to be computed. They're not, they're not handling themselves. They're just data collectors. Well, there's a couple of models here. One is that there's a local data center, effectively, you know, a compute cluster. Um, that's, but but there's a lot of folks that can't actually do that, and so then you end up with you know a couple of other flavors of this. One would be like a router, like Cisco's in this space, uh, a router that is got a the opportunity to run something, some virtual machine that can then munge the data. So you're sending the data very close. It's going from the sensor to the nearest router that's got this VM running on it that you can do the processing on. That that's a, a flavor of it. And then you've got, you know, Cisco's got a whole architecture behind this. It's not just this one thing, you know, on a router running a process. It's this whole system with a whole bunch of routers in the area that are all centrally managed and uh, gathering the data and reacting and so on. There's another company called uh, Foghorn Computing. They've, they've bid onto the fog thing, so their whole company is branded around the idea of fog. Wait, that's the name of the company? That's or the that's name the of the type company. of computing? Okay, no, I was the like, name do we have yeah, fog yeah. and then foghorn? And where's foghorn leghorn? What, anyway. right. <laughs> so foghorn, foghorn Computing makes little boxes that sit right on the IoT sensor device itself and does the data munging. Uh, so it's sort of like the Cisco model with a router that's got a VM on it. Foghorn is actually giving you a little box that sits right on the sensor and does the data munging. The data munging is effectively look at the data, get it in a format that I can do something with it, maybe turn it into metadata, ship it off, and then uh, you know, then then take that metadata for, and uh, you end up with a final result. Um, but but again, that whole idea of you're you're processing that sensor data right now, so you can react to it uh, very quickly. And, and obviously, in that model, we're, we're not worried about power and battery if we're computing right on the sensor. No. In these scenarios, again, it's, it's very often industrial applications where you've got okay. power. There is you know, there's power. There's some sort of network infrastructure. It's just you can't afford to ship it to public cloud or to your data center that's halfway around the globe or whatever it might be. Well, Chris, I've been <laughs> yapping a lot about IoT, all this different things that I've been reading about. And we, it's just kind of high level, but – well, we got to do some nerdy stuff with LoRaWAN and so on. But I mean, do you are, are you a believer that IoT is actually a thing now? I mean, I don't think I ever didn't believe it was. I still want to call it IOT, and I might try to get that moving uh, as a thing. Although I, probably <laughs> no one's going to be with me on that one. But uh, in all seriousness, I definitely did think it was a thing. What I initially thought when we were going to the conversation was that the security aspect had kind of killed all prospects of of, of success outside of the home because typically in the home there you know my example I have a Meraki device and it's actually two different networks there's the kind of the sensors and the lights and the air conditioning is on one part of the network and then my computer stuff on the other so I've kind of done some of the security things you've talked about and people tend to you know oh you have a Google Home at at the house aren't you worried about it well, like no I kind of have it in a bookshelf and it can only listen when it's really close to me and I've kind of tried to quell some of the tinfoil hat esque 
you know, vibes that I have in my body. What I found interesting here is that IoT is definitely a thing. It may be going towards the trough of disillusionment, but that just means that it's time to roll up our sleeves and solve these security problems to really unleash the beast, so to speak. And the idea of having these low-powered, SIP-the-data, you know, uh, remote sensors and things like that, that really sounds interesting, especially when we can start collecting data that we really just couldn't get before, or if we could get it, we couldn't send it back and forth in, in a reasonable amount of time, like the sensor that you have to go and physically collect every month or something like that. So it seems like it would open a lot of doors in the future, and I'm actually kind of excited about it. I think it was a worthy thing for you to cover in your book, and I'm excited to read that chapter. Yeah, I think the good news is that um, we know how to solve these problems. It's just that IoT has made us a little lazy because we're so eager to get the functionality out, whether we're a vendor <laughs> or maybe even deploying it. Maybe we just haven't thought through, and now we've been burned a few times. Like, okay, 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 we got to be adults about this thing. So, and, and we know how to do it. We've already got you know, designs and solutions and so on that can uh, secure IoT. We have the technology. We can rebuild it. All right. Well, that is it for today's edition of the Data Nuts podcast on Internet of Things. If you're a social creature, you can follow me. I'm at Chris Wall on the Twitters, and my blog is wallnetwork.com. Or my delightful technical friend, Ethan, he's at ECBanks on the Twitters, and his blog is ethancbanks.com. Make sure to check out his book. We'll have some more details in the show notes. For more of our Data Nuts shows about infrastructure engineering, do a nosedive down the rabbit hole that is packetpushers.net. It's got a fancy new website. It's all slick looking and amazing and definitely want to see your uh, and hear your feedback on that. Uh, you'll find the Data Nuts talking about containers and conferences, certifications, cloud, IoT, full stack engineering, you name it. We've got it. Until then, may your server lights blink, your internet be full of connected things, and your cables be cleanly managed. Thank you.